John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the words that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. 
Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I have made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Our Father in heaven, we thank you. You are a speaking God. You don't leave us in the dark. And we pray you'd open our ears to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we turn to that chapter, I've got a question I want to begin with, which is this. Does it ever bother you that so many people don't believe in Jesus? Does it ever bother you And by that, I don't mean, does it make us sad? Do we have compassion on people as they miss out on what Jesus can offer, life? That's a different talk, not that. And I don't mean, what about people who've never heard about Jesus? That's a different talk. The question I'm asking is, does it bother you that so many people hear something about Jesus and still don't believe him? Does that bother you? I remember going to university for the first time. I kind of found it unnerving how many people around me didn't believe in Jesus. And actually, when I told them things about Jesus, the strength of reaction back, the way they articulated quite what they thought of Jesus, really struck me. It's a bit unnerving. But of course, it's not just for students, is it? If you go into your workplace or your school or your nursery pickup, how many people there would give Jesus a second thought? And particularly if you did mention something about Jesus, what kind of reactions would you expect? I guess frosty but polite, awkward. Let's not talk about this again, <laughs> implicitly. Even if you're not a Christian here, I think this is a good, a good question to be thinking about. I mean, I've, I've no idea where you are in kind of looking into Christian things, 
But I wonder if one of the things that might stop you following Jesus is the fact so many other people don't follow him. They don't believe in him. I mean, can Christians really be right about what they say about Jesus when so many people don't see it? Maybe that's holding you back. And at the moment, in our culture, church attendance is massively declining in Scotland. So yes, this building's been reopened, but why was it sold in the first place? Because people aren't going to church and don't believe in Jesus. And actually, I think for for decades, the Christian message has been kind of ignored or ridiculed in our culture. But increasingly in Scotland, it's not just ridiculed. It's actually seen as quite dangerous. Have you noticed that beginning to shift? Jesus' teaching is so out of date and outmoded. It actually needs to be silenced. It's dangerous. And for those of us who are Christians, I wonder if that makes you wobble ever. I wonder if it bothers you that so many people don't believe Jesus and there are such strong, mixed reactions to him. Many Christians battle with occasional doubts. Some Christians battle regular doubts. They can be crippling doubts. And if we don't address them, well, it's possible to start just going through the motions as a Christian. You kind of turn up on Sundays, but, but you don't live whole of life as a follower of Jesus. So joy goes out the door. Obedience goes out the door. Witness goes out the door. Sacrifice goes out the door. Because is he really who we all say he is on a Sunday? We'll stop abiding in Jesus. We'll stop bearing fruit for Jesus. If we start to lose our conviction, if we start to think maybe the evidence just isn't that strong, that's why people don't believe. Well, as we've been seeing in this series, John's gospel is written so that we would believe in Jesus. It's an eyewitness account from one of his followers. He explains in chapter 20, his whole purpose is to compile compelling evidence to show us who Jesus really is. The Son of God, that is God walking on earth, and the Christ, that is God's King of all people. But if John's going to help us believe, well, he does kind of need to explain this question, doesn't he? He needs to give us an answer. He needs to explain the unbelief that's out there, the mixed responses And I'm pleased to say that chapter 7 is where he faces that question head on. We're in the middle of a big chunk, chapters 5 to 10, which which deals with the kind of controversy that Jesus created, the mixed reactions to Jesus. And chapter 7, right in the middle of it, um, shows us uh, quite how mixed that was. So open your Bible back up if you can to page 892, if you've got a church one, um, and just look at verse 1. That's all we need, really, verse 1, to show us the kind of reactions. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee, chapter 7, verse 1, on page 892. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's a reaction, pretty strong. And last week, end of chapter 6, um, verse 66, we saw that many people turned back, no longer walked with him. And actually, as we go on into the chapter, there'll be a whole myriad of reactions. Some as strong as that. We want nothing to do with you turned away. We want to silence you seeking to kill him. We'll see some others. It's almost like in this chapter, John's gone round with a microphone around Jerusalem, 
doing a kind of vox pop. Does that mean anything, a vox pop? It's like where you go around and, with a camcorder and record what people think of things. So what do you think of Brexit? Uh, it's the end of the world. What do you think of Brexit? Uh, can't happen soon enough. What do you think of Brexit? Brexit? Didn't realise it was happening. You know, a kind of straw poll. Um, you could do the same with any issue, Marmite. Um, but, assuming you only get two reactions. Um, here we are, verse 2 tells us it's the Feast of Booths at Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is packed with people, lots of people coming together for this feast. And John is going round, finding out what are the different viewpoints. So this is our first point. You'll see there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. Our first point is this. The real Jesus has always produced a wide range of reactions. The real Jesus has always produced a wide range of reactions. I say always because if we did a survey of your workplace or student halls or neighborhood high street, um, just outside the door in Morningside, if we did a survey, what do you think of Jesus? We'd get a wide range of views. And the striking thing is it was exactly the same in Jesus' day. The real Jesus has always produced a wide range. And so you can see on the outline, I've got some speech bubbles capturing the different views that are coming out. And for, for this sermon, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 24. But first, I want to do a quick overview to show you the different range of responses. And so let's dive into verse 12 um, on page 893, verse 12 of John 7. Um, so the Jews were looking around at the feast for Jesus, saying, where is he? That's verse 11. And then verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. That's the first two of our reactions to Jesus. Jesus is a good man. That's one reaction then. It was, it's one reaction today. That is a lot less than Jesus himself is claiming. So a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5, that bit we read at the first reading, Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, that we should treat him with equal worship and honor. In chapter 6, we, we saw that his death, his flesh and blood, is the only thing that can give people life, eternal life. So he's a good man, falls a long way short of what Jesus himself says about himself. In fact, I sometimes wonder if you can only really believe Jesus was a good man if you haven't actually read the historical accounts of his life, the Gospels, or maybe you haven't read them recently, read them as a grown-up. But it is a very common reaction, isn't it? He's a good man. I guess if, if we did stand out there with a clipboard, that would be one of the most common reactions we'd get. He is a good man. Got no problems with Jesus, he's a good man. The second reaction, though, also in verse 12, is that he's a fraud. He's leading people astray. I actually think this is a better informed reaction than the first one. Because if you know much about what Jesus did or what he taught, he can't just be a good man. There was a fashion um, over the last couple of centuries in some um, areas of theology, a fashion to say that Jesus never thought he was God. That just kind of emerged later. His followers got carried away. Um, he was just an inspirational human being. 
And that view has seeped out into our culture. It's seeped out into churches. It's one of the reasons, actually, people think they can politely ignore Jesus. Just a good man. But it is nonsense. I need to say it's a historical fairy tale. It's just that that is a man-made myth that's come along afterwards. Because why are people trying to kill Jesus here? 7 verse 1, why are they trying to kill him? Well, the reason was back in chapter 5. Just flick back to chapter 5. Our first reading, page 890. Chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus does this miracle. He heals a man's body. And it was on the Sabbath. People complain. And his defense is, well, God works on the Sabbath. My father, Father God. And so do I. And verse 18 of chapter 5. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Don't let someone tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Later in the gospel, Thomas, one of his disciples, Doubting Thomas, bows on his knees and says, my Lord, my God, he worships Jesus. And rather than a good rabbi would do and say, no, 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 that is blasphemy. Get up, get up off your knees. I'm not God. Well, Jesus accepts it. <coughs> says, blessed are other people who believe that. At which point, I think you can start to understand the he's a fraud reaction. Given the size of his claims, God walking on earth, given the kinds of things he says, he says in chapter 5, um, if you don't honor me, you don't honor God. It says in chapter 6, when asked, what is the work of God? What does God want us to do? He says, the work of God is that you believe in me, whom God sent. I mean, someone claims that. They're not just a good man. They can't be a good man. C.S. Lewis famously said, he's either mad, or he's bad, or he's God. He's definitely not a good man. He hasn't left that option open. And so some people think he can't be the real deal. He's a fraud. And we've said, verse 12, he's leading people astray. It's at the end of the chapter. If you look to verse 47, back in, sorry, John 7, verse 47. So page 893, verse 47, the Pharisees, some of the leaders, um, speaking to people who are starting to be convinced, they say, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Jesus? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. He's just deceived gullible people, simpletons. He's a fraud. In fact, even his own brothers wondered if he was a fraud. Did you hear that in the reading? Um, verse 5 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 5. Not even his own brothers believed in him. They were wanting Jesus to, to do some miracles in some more public settings. Seemed they doubted. Can our brother really be God walking around? That's the second reaction. But a third reaction, again contrasting, is that he is amazing. He's just amazing. Look at verse 15, what, what people are saying there. The microphone moves across. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? When Jesus stands up to preach and teach, 
They marvel. How can a carpenter's son from Galilee teach better than the most advanced or highly trained philosophers and scribes and religious experts? And that's actually a really good question. Um, Later in verse 46, someone says, no one ever spoke like this man. And that is actually true. I mean, where did he learn his stuff? He's not been to the right universities, but he's been more influential on the planet than all of the universities. I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? How is it that one moderately educated, convicted criminal, the teaching of that man, the words of that man, have come to be respected all over the world and and start to shape cultures, law codes, like our law code, until recently. I mean, that does suggest maybe he's not a fraud. Maybe he doesn't just have magic tricks to confuse the gullible. Of course, verse 16, Jesus' explanation is, is this. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do God's will, he'll know whether my teaching's from God. Jesus' explanation is, my teachings come direct from God. And it is extraordinary. I just think about it. Whatever you pick, forgive as you've been forgiven. Love your neighbor as yourself. Before you remove the speck from your brother's eye, why not remove the plank from yours? The Good Samaritan story, the prodigal son's story, the way he explains the Old Testament like no one could before. It is amazing. But there's another reaction in the chapter, the next one along, that those very ideas that amaze people are dangerous. Dangerous. It's a reaction of hostility. Um, So verse 19, Jesus asks, Why do you seek to kill me? Some of the crowd think he's paranoid. He must be demon-possessed, confused. But actually, verse 25, "Is Is not this the man they're seeking to kill? And verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him. And verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and so the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. It's striking, that last one. They wanted to arrest him because when his teaching was heard, people were amazed. That's striking, isn't it? We need to ban him from the public square because his thoughts are dangerous. I really think you can begin to see that attitude in bits of our society. So rather than argue with Jesus' ideas, we'll just bully him off the platform. Just shout him down so we don't have to kind of engage. So ban the CU, Christian Union, from booking rooms. Ban Christian charities doing brilliant work from mentioning Jesus. Get rid of Christians who are high profile, like Tim Farron leading a major political party. But let's step back. I mean, do you see the, just the huge range of views? He's a good man. He's a fraud. He's amazing. He's got to be silenced. He's dangerous. We've got to kill him. Extraordinary range. And of course, sitting behind all those reactions, the real issue is who actually is he? So the next line of speech bubbles are all about that. We'll just briefly touch on these. This is next week much more. But verse 26, people ask, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
Verse 31, many of the people believed in Jesus. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs, miracles, than this man has done? By verse 41, others are saying, this is the Christ. There's a reaction. This actually is the king of God's king of the world. But again, John's eyewitness honesty, his roving reporting, shows that that wasn't the only view out there. John thinks he's the Christ, but verse 41, others were thinking, is the Christ to come from Galilee? He's from the wrong place. Or verse 27, I think that's wrong. Verse 47, verse 41 maybe, um, he can't be, oh, it is 47, he can't be from Galilee. He can't be from Galilee, say the, say the um, Pharisees. We know that no prophet comes from Galilee. So a massive range of views and real direct contradictions about who he is. He is the Christ, he's not the Christ. He is the prophet, he's not the prophet. So there's a comment in verse 43, there was division among the people over Jesus. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? And you look around our world, look around the globe, there is division over what you make of Jesus. It's really striking. The message of Jesus has spread around the globe. It's crossed national boundaries, racial boundaries, linguistic boundaries, cultural boundaries. But everywhere it goes, there are some who believe it, say, yes, this is the truth, the way to life. There are some who hate it. We've got to silence this and kill those who follow. And there's a whole range of people confused in between. So what do you make of it? And does it unnerve you that this mixed response happens? Surely if the evidence was as clear and as compelling as John thinks it is, surely there'd be more agreement. Surely more of our universities or media or politicians would be pro-Jesus if God's made it obvious. Surely Christians wouldn't be in the minority. And this really matters. John's claim is Jesus is the only way to get eternal life, true life, life to the full. I said to you earlier, earlier I said um, it's a bit like someone going around with a microphone doing a vox pop. That's not actually the right image at all. Because John's gospel is more like a court case Evidence is being presented. Witnesses are being called. And we're heading towards the point, the hour, when Jesus is going to be put on trial for his life. So actually, this chapter, it's less like a roving report about do people like Marmite. It's more like a hidden camera in the jury room. Here are the different characters who will make up the jury about Jesus. And you look at things being said, and you'd have to say, well, currently it's a hung jury. There's no consensus. Radically different views. So maybe the evidence isn't strong. Maybe the case is weak. So if you're not a Christian here, 
Maybe God hasn't given you enough evidence. Maybe you can't be held accountable for your reaction. If we are Christians here, maybe we should be a little less confident as in talking about Jesus, a bit more tentative. That's a very popular view today. Um, there's, a view that, there's one view that asserts maybe all religions, even though they think different things, different things about Jesus, maybe they can all be true in some kind of way. My truth, your truth. I don't think many people really believe that. It's convenient, but I'm not sure people really believe it. He can't simultaneously be the Christ and not the Christ. I can't simultaneously be the assistant minister and not the assistant minister. There must be an answer. But a more common view is that I'm not saying they're all true. I'm just saying you can't tell. You just can't tell. So many different viewpoints out there. Well, no one can be confident. And so certainly don't try and persuade other people of your view. The jury is hung. We can't say beyond reasonable doubt who Jesus really was. So Christians of all people should not be so arrogant as to say that some ideas are wrong and that theirs is right. Didn't Jesus himself say, judge not lest you be judged? That's true, he did say that and we must not be self-righteous. But he also said verse 24, a less famous verse about judging, which is our second point. Verse 24, Jesus says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. Faced with all these different viewpoints in Jerusalem, Jesus says the problem is not actually with the evidence. The problem is with your judgments. You're not judging rightly. So that's our second point. The problem is with our judgment, not the evidence. I think we can understand what he's getting at, don't we? Um, Sometimes our response to evidence says more about us than it does about the case. So I don't know if you're following the story of the Salisbury poisonings. Over the last couple of weeks, an ever-increasing amount of evidence has been made public, pointing the finger to who did it. And yet, from Russian spokesmen, Russian media, they continue to deny any involvement, come up with all sorts of different answers for that evidence. When the evidence is clear, but the jury is still coming to a whole range of strange explanations, you begin to wonder if there's something wrong with the jury with their judgment. Could be anything, couldn't it? They could be being intimidated. They could have a vested interest. There could be another agenda going on. They could just be prejudiced. Through these first 24 verses of the chapter, the bit we're looking at in detail, Jesus points out that's what's happening. There's a problem with the jury, a problem with us. So we're going to work our way through briefly seeing that To start, back at the start, with his brothers, these brothers who didn't believe in him. Um, Don't be thrown by the conversation about when Jesus is going up to the feast. I think think they think he's a bit of a PR failure. Chapter 6, people have turned away from him. And so they're kind of suggesting, if if you go public straight away, come in with us in a crowd, or maybe then you'll get popular. Jesus turns them down. But his reason, his comment is really striking. Verse 7 
So he says, my time's not yet come, your time's always here. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Here is Jesus' explanation of why he gets such a bad response in Jerusalem. It's not, the world hates me because I haven't shown it any proof. The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. It's exactly actually what, God, what John said in the prologue, the intro to the gospel. He said this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, but his own people did not receive him. Why didn't people receive the light? Well, in chapter 3, John tells us this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. When we looked at that passage, we said that humans were, were naturally a bit like spiders. So Jesus steps into the world. Suddenly, the bright lights are flicked on. And in that kind of blinking clarity of God's righteousness, his moral purity, the actual standard of right and wrong, well, like spiders, we, we dread being exposed. We scuttle to the darkness. We run for cover. Or we hate him. We try and get him silenced. Jesus says, it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. To put it another way, the jury is prejudiced because we know that if we return the verdict, Jesus is God, that means that I am guilty. What jury would admit they were guilty, even if the truth was pointing that he is God? And it's striking, in every culture of the world, there's some aspect of Jesus' teaching which is deeply uncomfortable. It varies by place, it varies by time. At the moment in our culture, a big one is, can God tell me what to do with my body? But it varies what the issue is. Everywhere, Jesus shines a light. Every heart, it's not just out there, every heart, everyone has experienced, the, if they're a Christian even, has experienced the, the painful exposure of Jesus shining a light right into my heart and showing me there's something wrong. And some hate that light so much they try and smash the bulb, extinguish him. We'll see more of that in chapter 8 when we see he's the light of the world. That's the first problem with our judgment. We naturally hate the light Jesus shines on us. The second problem comes in verse 13. It's a very simple one, but it's true. Verse 13. So remember verse 12, we got that first two different views of Jesus. He's a good man. He's a, he's a fraud. But verse 13, just look at it. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Jews there is just talking about the leaders, and that's usually what the phrase means in, in John's gospel, the particular religious leaders of the day, the ones conspiring to kill Jesus. But notice their hostility is silencing everyone else. It's pure and simple peer pressure, intimidation, fearing what people think of us. I'm sure if we went round, we could have countless stories of times we felt 
peer pressure, embarrassed to openly talk about Jesus. Maybe you're here and your friends or your family wouldn't know you were here and you wouldn't actually want to tell them. Well, if you're here, you're you're very welcome. And my, my appeal is don't let hostility of others stop you from actually looking into who Jesus is. Because Jesus, verse 16, says he's brought teaching from above, from God himself, teaching on how we can have life. That's the second reason. The third reason starts in verse 17. Jesus says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That is to say, a jury member who really wants to do what God wants will discover as they live out Jesus' teaching an ever-increasing conviction that these aren't just man's words. They're God's words. But as Robin prayed earlier, we actually need a miracle for that to happen. Naturally, well, verse 19, naturally we're lawbreakers. So Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Naturally, I want to live my way, my call. Don't you boss me around, God. Naturally, we don't want God's glory. We want our glory. That's why peer pressure is such a big factor. You see, the jury is hung because the jury's trying to avoid the one verdict that makes sense of the evidence. Jerusalem and Morningside and Scotland are full of contradictory views about Jesus because we don't want the obvious one to be true. The problem's with us, not Jesus. And if you don't believe me, well, point three is a brief reminder that the evidence about his identity is, it is actually compelling. We don't have time to look at this properly in detail, but I'm just going to recap some of the evidence we've seen today and in previous weeks. So we've already had verse 15, do you remember? This amazing teaching of Jesus. All the primary historical accounts of his life point out that people were amazed at what he said, and many of them record his words, so you can actually check what he said. How do we explain its unique quality? That's the marvelous teaching, but it's not just that. Remember verse 31? When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That's a good question. So in chapter 5, he completely healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. That's the one work he's referring to in verse 21 here. I did one work. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men and all the women and children with them. And eyewitnesses say he actually walked on the water, and they include the detail, three or four miles out. They're not sure of the distance, but it was a long way. What exactly would you take as evidence that God has turned up in his world? Strikes me, those are remarkable examples. And they're signposts pointing to his identity. So marvellous teaching, marvellous miracles. And finally, multiple testimony. All this discussion at the end of our passage, verses 21 to 24, is about whose side is Moses on. Moses wrote um, uh, the early books of the Bible. 
So, does the Old Testament part of the Bible support or undermine Jesus' claims? Let's just flick back to chapter 5. This is where we're going to close. Just flick back to chapter 5. And let me read verse 46. Jesus says this. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus claims the Old Testament as well points to him. Not just his teaching, not just his miracles, but the Old Testament points to him. Multiple witnesses. We don't have time in this passage, but John the Baptist pointed to him. The Father pointed to him, and Moses pointed to him. How did Moses write about Jesus? What did he say? Well, Moses wrote of bread in the wilderness, manna from God. He wrote of a Passover lamb. He wrote of God being able to cross the sea and bring his people safely with him. And Moses said, there's going to be a much bigger guy coming along than me, a prophet, the prophet. And in chapter 6, just after that comment from Jesus, if you believe Moses, we see Jesus being the true bread in the wilderness. We see Jesus being the true Passover lamb. You need to eat my flesh for life. We see Jesus walking across the sea, taking God's name, I am, leading his people across. The miracles are signposts. So Jesus says there's plenty of evidence. My words, my teaching, my miracles, and centuries of promises and patterns and predictions about what God does that Jesus then fulfills when he steps in onto the planet. And so far from being wobbly when we see mixed reactions to Jesus, we should be compassionate. We should pray for ourselves. When we wobble, we should look back at the evidence and pray that our own vested interest, our own natural desire to hide from the light doesn't cause us to make the wrong judgments. <coughs> it's time to close, but if you are someone looking into Christian things here, I'd love to chat to you more. I'd love for you to read through John's Gospel and see what you make of the evidence. I can give you a free copy if you want it. But it is compelling. Come back next week for more on that. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we admit that Naturally, none of us want to be exposed. But sometimes the light of Jesus is painfully bright for us. And we ask that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts to keep believing and abiding in him and so bearing much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.